in this group of listeners, you know, you have entrepreneurs who are both for-profit and not-for-profit entrepreneurs. And um, some, some entrepreneurs like you or me actually fulfill their desire by forming a not-for-profit and doing things that way. Um, in all of them, I would say superior achievement is very common among these listeners. What's maybe not as common is not all of them would describe themselves as fulfilled or content. Would you describe yourself as content? Yes. Was that the answer you were expecting? I, I, I'm I, restless, but I'm completely content. So that quote was lifted from my podcast with Ford Reiki, my good friend and client whom you'll have a chance to listen to for the next hour and hearing an equal number of those interesting insights and yet subtleties that Ford thought through as he accomplished the capital gain transaction with his company, Safe Handling. Ford has been more than 10 years since the cap gain transaction and has thought through and experienced a number of different chapters in that time. He'll have the chance to share those with you over the next hour, as well as to talk with you about the possibility of forming, as he did, an operating foundation, not merely a charitable foundation, but an operating foundation that is approved by the IRS to take charitable donations from others for a specific mission and why he found that the best thing to do in uh, renovating the Halfway Rock Lighthouse and a number of other projects he has with his Presumpscott Foundation. Ford is an equal parts brain and brawn, witty and scholarly. I know you'll enjoy the next hour as much as I enjoyed it with Ford. Ford, I, we're going to talk um, about a lot of topics today. Probably one of the ones that I'm most interested in chatting with you about is being called to the future versus being driven by the past and how that's resulted in your work in your own private operating foundation. But before we do that, um, many of the enterprise, enter, positive enterprise value listeners are entrepreneurs who know you uh, by reputation or they can look you up and they see that you're an entrepreneur and you've operated a number of different businesses. You're a, you've been educated as an attorney. You're a family man, et cetera, et cetera. Give me a couple of nouns. If you were talking to one of your grandkids, how would you describe what you do these days? Um, I probably would have picked verbs instead of nouns, but the um, uh, his that sounds yeah. right. <laughs> um, I'm in, in a commercial sense. I'm still doing some commercial real estate. Just it's an adjunct to to investments, uh, but that's you get drawn back into business doing that. But it's a place to park money. Um, but what I'm passionate about is uh, history. So right. That would be my now. Right. So, so if you could name the chapters of your life, what chapter are we in? Uh, numerically? You can name them. You decide. Um, I think we're in the chapter uh, where I'm doing what, completely what I want uh, instead of having to go to work part of the time and fit in, fit in other activities, although I love to work and I loved my job. Uh, but I'm 
taking each day and uh, dividing up the way I want to. And what chapter is this? Is this chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, 27? Uh, this is, would be chapter 4, probably. And where do the chapters start? What's chapter 1 look like? Um, I think for anyone it would be uh, up until the point where you get out of school or start get married or get a home. That would, that would be the end of chapter 1. And then uh, I've had two... I would say two jobs. I was an attorney for a short period of time. Didn't particularly care for that. I love having the uh, expertise that comes with being an attorney. Um, and then um, third chapter was uh, 20 years that I spent building the company that Bigelow sold for me. And that uh, 10 years ago, I sold that. I forgot. Was that that was 20 years? Yes, exactly. Oh my goodness! I, I would have thought it was half of that. Yeah. No. And so. Um, you were an attorney for a short period of time. Were you a good attorney? Uh, I think I was a good attorney. Uh, like lots of entrepreneurs, I think that I was going in too many directions. I, was, I started a, a, a small law firm, started from scratch with, ah. with a buddy from, with friends from uh, law school. And uh, so we would do anything for a buck. Um, you need a trademark? Yeah, I can do that. You need a divorce? Yeah, no problem. I'm good at that. So, so in a way, you were an entrepreneur as an attorney. Yes, and I attracted. I was good at attracting business, and I I came to realize that I was good at um, the the business strategy of transactions. Uh, but as an attorney, and uh, that. <laughs> Uh, a final straw for me was John Knoll's wife was at a closing with me and I had a huge stack of paper in front of me and she said so that's what you do and I realized no I, I, the, the paper part I guess I don't need to do <laughs> so uh, you uh, even as an attorney you showed some entrepreneurial roots were, were you an entrepreneur before that like in going back to chapter one you said chapter one was kind of when you you go through school, et cetera. Were you an entrepreneur as a kid? Yes, yeah, definitely. And definitely. what was your first job, or what was your first business? Um, my so my my great grandparents, my grandparents, and my parents were all in the antique business, where you you acquire something for X dollars and theoretically peddle it for X plus something else. And when you say in the business, did they have a shop or did they? Yeah, they were going back to 1920. Um, my great, my great grandparents were very early in the antique business. So anyway, but that's, that is a, that is about as basic as a business transaction can get. And, and did you get started there? Yeah. And then I ended up doing, doing it for a while. I've, you know, I still, as you know, I know something about antiques and yes. yeah, I, I Karen and I, I got the money to get married by uh, by buying a house full of antiques and making twelve thousand bucks. Nice. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. So that. Uh, but I've done. I did um, a number of things that were. That I would you'd characterize as entrepreneurial when I was in school. And so, what did Chapter Two look like? Um, that would be the period that I was uh, an attorney, which was uh, not um, not um, highly rewarding in many ways. Um, but it was the basis for, I think, um, business judgment. I've never sued anyone, for instance. I've been been in commerce, been in a lot of commerce, um, and uh, as a result, been in, in, in any entanglement as many entanglements as anyone else would be for that many right. years in business. And, I, and I've never uh, had to resort to uh, litigation, which is a terrible way to, res to resolve disputes. And that I think is partly because of the being an attorney, you get to see two sides. I think a little more clearly than. 
than otherwise. Yeah, isn't that interesting you say that? Um, my mentor in our business, Dick Kimball, had taught me early on that same lesson. And uh, at Bigelow, uh, although uh, we've been around since the 1930s, to my knowledge, we've never sued anyone and have never been sued. And so sometimes people say, wow, that's amazing. And I say, no, don't get me wrong. We, we have disputes. We have disagreements. But I think what you said is the most insightful thing, which is we are very aware that there's a story on the other side. <laughs> and so yeah. sometimes we have to really look in the mirror and ask ourselves, what part of this dispute is because of us? Yeah. And what part of this dispute should we be willing to listen to the other side? Yeah. I, um, I certainly make more than at least my share of mistakes. Um, but if I were just trying to introduce myself to someone else in a business setting, that's one of the first things I'd say about myself is the absence of litigation. Interesting. So uh, Chapter 3 was the um, beginning and the um, growth of safe handling. Yep. Tell, say a little bit about that. Um, started a company from scratch, and just like um, when I was beginning to practice law, I told you a moment ago the answer was yes to every question. If, if, if someone who wanted to spend money did something done, the answer was yes. And um, it was a transportation company in Maine serving um, large chemical shippers and raw material shippers that were coming into Maine industry by rail. And we just provided them all the service. We would try to find where they were needing service and then would figure out a way to provide it and charge, charge good money for it. And it ended up with... Um, $20 million in revenue, gross revenue at the end, or close to that, and uh, 100 employees. And, but it's just, yeah, I, I think you could, I, I could have done, not, I mean, not that it was magic, but I, I, I would have, if I was selling snow tires, it would have been the same business approach, and, I, you know, it's, it's a way to grow a company. And, and what industry would you say safe handling was in, or is in? Um, the, the obvious answer would be transportation um, or logistics. Um, it, I think it was just more problem solving, figuring out what, figuring out where where there was a, a, a service needed and providing it. But it is technically it was logistics. Yeah, I, I viewed the business as really an industry that uh, before I saw you execute it, I didn't really uh, understand it existed because while I agree with you, logistics or transportation might be the broad category. I think in a way you were your value proposition was to your customers, let me help you with this. And if I create value for you, would you agree to let me have a slice of the value that I create? Yeah. And so that's a, a way of building a business where the customer almost always says yes, right? Yes, yeah. if you can bring value to me, yes, I'll pay you a slice of it. Definitely. Um, I, th I think the fact that we didn't know anything about logistics was an advantage. Yeah. Because we just were solving, you know, our, our what, what struck us as a common sense approach um, wasn't necessarily proven out in the past but it, it sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't we made we, we went entered uh we approached lots of things that didn't work we just backed out of them quickly but the, i read i read one time that uh the uh, one of the most effective people in f the sport of fencing are people who have never done it before because the other side doesn't know what's going to happen <laughs> next <laughs> uh i might be an example of that <laughs> so um Chapter 1, Chapter 2, Chapter 3, Chapter 4. As you think about yourself, do you feel like you have knowledge of, like, in what ways might you be challenging or tricky to work with? Am I Yeah. Say more about that. Um, the, 
well, I'm particular, and um, I if, like lots of people who are who have had their own company. Or you, you're used to getting your own way. I think you try to be mindful of that, but um, you're used to getting your own. You're used to solving problems your own way. So with that comes a certain amount of confidence, and I think that could be um, be a little difficult for people to work with. I try not to. I try very hard not to be difficult to work with, but um, I've I've. I've unraveled things and started over so many times. I'm just really comfortable doing that, and that might not that might not be uh, easy all the time. So, um, when you say um, you're in terms of getting your own way, let me just dive into that a little bit because I, when I think of you, I don't really think of it that way. I think in some ways you you're so creative that you see a solution, perhaps a different way, and that you're persistent and tenacious about going down that way to find that solution. And you might put that in the category of getting your own way, but it's because you're you're trying to pursue that solution. Would you agree with that? Yes, it's not it's not necessarily because I'm an adolescent that <laughs> um, <laughs> I got to have my own yeah. way. No, I think I think it comes with a certain amount of confidence, and and as you point out, confidence in being in being uh, unorthodox in your approach. I'm blessed with having uh, attention deficit disorder, so I think I've, I've come to rationalize that with. Um, um, I, I think that that I, when my brain is trying to get from point A to point B, it does the rest of the alphabet between A and B, and that can that can have possibilities emerge that are not in the normal line. So I'm dashing hither and yon is part of the way I, I've done a lot of things, and I'm comfortable with it. But that, yeah. that can be disruptive. Yeah. No, I have seen you um, sometimes. Um, um, Listeners to the podcast can't see us, but I'm holding up a, an object, and I'm saying I've seen you sometimes say, "Well, let's consider that point of view." But then you might turn the object, and say, "But let's look at it from this side for a second. Okay, actually, let's turn it upside down. Let's look at it from that side. Mm-hmm. I view that as a real strength. You know, when I was with a group of entrepreneur owner managers uh, last year, um, maybe more than a hundred of them, and I uh, said to them, "Usually, when we're not together, we're the weird kids in the room." And we have this group of ADD dyslexic misfits, right? And I, I was treading on bordering, borderline there. And they all burst into laughter and then applause because they said, yeah, that's who we are. So when you mentioned like, you're benefited by ADD, I have to agree with that. Mm-hmm. Gosh, it's, it's a great skill. How do you, but how do you learn? Do you learn by, by reading, by listening, by watching? Um, I think... Um, I think I would fall in the lifelong learner category. If you want to, if I want to learn how to do something, I go out and figure it out. One of a couple of my children are like that as well. Um, but I'm probably more effective as a learner now than I was in a structured setting. So, do you, I asked you if you learn like by reading, listening, um, whatever? So, you, are you saying all of the above? Um, I'm sorry, I didn't. <laughs> I was thinking about something else when you answered the, asked the question. Um, the um, no, definitely reading. I mean, I would I would go to reading first. Really? Yeah. 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 I think I would too, but I also greatly benefit by doing, and even if I get it wrong, yeah, yeah by doing. So, um, in chapter four. You know, in some points over the years, you and I um, probably go back 
more than 10 years. And when we first met, um, thinking about safe handling, in a way, you were um, inspired to draw that chapter to a conclusion, right? Mm -hmm. Why was that? Um, More for two reasons. One, I, I did not... I did not think I was capable of taking the company to the next level. And you, you folks had told me that you, you thought the value would be if I could um, go from three facilities, which I think we had at the time, to maybe a dozen, or just you know, do, do, take the top line to a, to a whole new level, which would, would have meant travel, um, organization building, which I'm not good at. Um, well, I'm not, I'm not good at... I'm, I'm not good at doing it in a in a smooth fashion, um, and so the, the, I did not want to um, go down the path that would be quite to grow the company. I also thought that um, the world was changing uh, in the markets that we were in, and I didn't I didn't think that there would be an industrial base in the Northeast uh, that would continue growing, and we would have needed that if I had stayed on. And so, in if uh, the, I would characterize what you just said as, in some ways, you felt like. I may have contributed most of the value that I could. Right. You've seen that movie many, many times. And you you drew the conclusion uh, that you were going to move it on. And so that that's like a huge decision that I think listeners will uh, hear because many listeners would think, I, I don't know if I am at the end of my ability to give value to my uh, enterprise. How did you decide that? Um, I think I had... I had been through enough CFOs and operations people um, to to realize that I I was perhaps as much a part of that that frequent turnover as as anything else, and just that that is... um, that's probably not something you want to see in, in, uh, in someone who's going to take a company to the next level of growth. Yeah, I agree. But, wow, you had enormous self-awareness to be able to look at that because I think a lot of us listening to this are probably nodding our heads and saying, yeah, we get that. And yet, were you drawn to the next chapter, chapter four, whatever that is? No, not necessarily. Did you know what it could be? No, it didn't matter. Um, and I'll come back to that in a second. I will also say, because I never, I didn't even know about Young President's of America, or whatever that organization is called, YPO. Yeah. YPO. I didn't even know about that. I was not in any sort of group um, of other people that were situated similarly to me, and so I, I um, had consultants come in and went through the standard, you know, Myers Briggs and Leadership Three Hundred and Sixty, and all these other things. I did that a lot. I had an appetite for that, um, and I had other I put other brought other people in my organization uh, uh, through that with me. But in the course of all that, I, I developed a keener awareness of, of my many limitations. That's really interesting. And, you know, I am a huge fan, a huge fan of uh, entrepreneur peer-to-peer organizations. YPO is one, Vistage is another, there are others. So that entrepreneurs can hear, and what I f- frequently find is they they have this realization like, oh, I didn't know anyone had this concern but me. <laughs> and so, yeah, that, that's great. And so you had this thirst for continued learning. It's at, 
the time that you were building the organization, you know, it's sort of axiomatic that organizations and people work best when everyone sort of thinks and acts and feels like they're almost like an owner of the business. How did you uh, manage to have your team feel empowered that way? Uh, I wasn't great at it. I gave them I gave them responsibility, but I still had to micromanage all the time, which I think goes with the uh, management weaknesses I was I was describing. But I try to try to give people responsibility for what they were doing. Did you have other owners in the business in addition to yourself? Yes, a very effective one uh, for for almost tw- almost I guess fifteen years of that time. Uh, very different characters. Uh, he was beloved and knew the science and technology of what we did very well. He was an authority well outside of our company, and, and I, I didn't know any of that. I just knew how to, um, I think, grow an operation. Yeah, in some ways, uh, you may not describe yourself this way, but in some ways what you did was act as the business development person, right? That's right. The salesperson. Yeah. 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 Because I can negotiate well. And because I was an attorney, I could structure deals um, that were good for the company. So... As you brought Chapter 3 to a close, in some points of our discussion, you and I, um, you had some thoughts about getting out of the business. Yet, as we go through Chapter 4 together here, in some ways, it turns out you're more into different enterprises than ever. Do I have that right? Um, pro- yeah, that's, that's, just, that's correct. Tell me about that. Um, well, you, you, asked, you, start, you asked me a moment ago about how I, I think how I had the confidence to to think about selling the company or yes. what I would be doing next. Yeah. Um, I don't know where that confidence comes from. I, I have lots, I always have had lots of energy and lots of interests. And so I think with that, I've always believed I could connect the dots in whatever the next situation was. So when I stopped practicing law, I didn't have a job. I just set a date of May 1, I think it was 1986. I haven't practiced law for over 30 years. Um, I set a date and said that's when I'm leaving here, and I didn't have I didn't have a job to go into, and you know, and I ended up doing doing uh, fine. And then uh, when I was selling the company, I just it just wasn't something that was on my radar, uh, part of my planning about exactly what am I going to do. So I, as you know, thanks to Bigelow, I, I sold the company, and I was unemployed on the day of the closing. So so um, I think that is a very different. Uh, Story narrative than, than some other entrepreneurs. And uh, it strikes me that th- taking those actions was very intentional on your part, right? You picked a day that you're going to be out of the, the law firm. You, in a way, picked a date with us, uh, not necessarily a date so much as I am going to be uh, selling the majority control of the business, and on that day I am out, basically, mm-hmm. uh, of the business. And yet you're saying that you didn't know where you were going in the next stage. Right. And it wasn't reckless. It wasn't something I did on a whim. I just So if it wasn't reckless, but you didn't know where you were going, how did you think about it? I wasn't troubled by it. So it, just, it was not something I needed to plan for. I, just, I knew I've been around for 66 years with me, and I, I, I figured something would work out. And I was confident in it. So I think I know the answer to this question. But so then, if you are in these different chapters, and in each of these chapters you've been striving, and you've had successes, um, do you have a destination in chapter four, or chapter five? No, no, I don't. Um, 
Should I? I'm not sure if any of us can articulate the destination for Chapter 4 or Chapter 5 other than, I'm not trying to be cute here, but other than I've kind of concluded that for many entrepreneurs, including myself, the, it's the realization that our natural uh, element is to be striving. Right, yeah. So that yeah, we might be striving it. in chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, and then we might be striving differently right. in chapter four, five, yeah. six. I agree. So um, have you, people listening to this say, wow, Ford did this, you know, went to this, he then did this, he saw all these successes. Do you, did you ever have any failures or setbacks that you can share with us? Loads. Things that you've learned from? Um, I've learned to be... I think this goes with. I think this comes with uh, the, the territory of getting older to uh, be uh, be kinder. Uh, when, particularly when I was, you know, when you're young, and particularly if you're in, not in an organiza- in a big business organization, a lot of what you do is from sc- by scrapping. And I'm uh, uh, work just as hard. I'm less of a scrapper. More. More, uh, more civil. I would, if I had, if I had uh, this career to do again, I would be, I would start out being more civil. I think you get more from that. And I don't, I, and not, not that I ever was engaged in outrageous behavior, but you just get, you don't have to be tough to be effective. That's interesting. I, I don't view you uh, in my knowledge of you and my history with you as ever really being particularly adversarial. So when you say more civil, are you saying more willing to be open-minded about things, or perhaps being a little less direct? If someone's being a pain in the ass, you don't need to necessarily let them know they're being a pain in the ass. What? It doesn't get you anything. I've come to realize that uh, that uh, make, making an enemy uh, can come back to haunt you. Although it hasn't haunted me in big ways, but it's just something I've developed an appreciation for. The alternatives are are as if more effective and less painful. Yeah, I would share with you in my own life, uh, I kind of concluded a while ago that uh, since um, I cannot change you, and since you're not capable of changing me, that you can only change yourself. And if you decided you wanted to change, then I guess I could be powerful in helping you. Mm -hmm. But since that's the case, if we disagree, there's no point for me trying to to turn you around to my point of view. It's up to you. If you are a seasoned, successful entrepreneur, owner, manager, are you challenged by this piece? At Bigelow, we believe entrepreneur, owner, managers are the most powerful pro-social and pro-economic force on the planet. And it's for that reason that we dedicate our firm, Bigelow, to working exclusively with you. You can find all of the episodes of this podcast on Bigelow's website, which is BigelowLLC.com. So um, let's chat a little bit about what you've been doing since uh, you successfully exited safe handling and thinking about, I want to come to the idea of the operational foundation because I know that many entrepreneur owner managers, as they think about the next chapter after the ownership of their business, they are uh, they have a, a bunch of things that they're interested in. I mean, they're interested in taking care of their family, obviously. They're frequently interested in taking care of their community. They frequently are having to think through wealth advisory. And in that sort of uh, triad, um, they sometimes get involved with 
501c3 charitable organizations run by others as a as a funder or a donor and many of them if they have significant capital gain have their own charitable foundation their family foundation or whatever and yet you've taken a different route help me understand uh, what what led you to that different route of going towards an operating foundation i i I didn't know it existed until i started started looking for a way to do things myself (coughs) excuse me um Lots of people in business leadership positions have a social conscience and are active in philanthropic work, even at a small level. Um, it can be financial support. It can be time because they have skills that can be very valuable to a nonprofit organization. But I don't mean to be generalizing very much for myself, but I think for other people, if you're used to running a company, it, is, it can be excruciating to sit on a committee in a small nonprofit organization uh, and go at uh, 10 miles an hour when you're used to going 15 miles an hour. And so it's just not a good match for people who I think can be very, very effective in the nonprofit world. And so uh, lots of times you see people saying, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to, do, I'm going to figure out a way to do, to do charitable work or nonprofit work. Um, social benefit work uh, my own way and it rather than try to re-steer a, a, a non-profit that's been doing things its way for decades it, doing it yourself alone or building it the way you want to build it uh, is is effective I mean Bill Gates does it at, at, at the monster level and there are people like in my situation who do it at a very very modest level but I do what I want um, and I do it my way. I get help when I need it. Okay, so I'm going to come back to that, but just uh, let me fill out a little more flesh on the bones if you could. So, um, you know, many of the listeners and I have had lots and lots and lots of not-for-profit volunteer uh, action over the past, for my case, 40 years and leadership. And um, I've got my own views of that. I mean, to some degree, the more I do, the less, the more disenchanted I become. Uh, because while there are an infinite number of good intentioned people and there's an infinite number of good causes, boy, it's 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 challenging to find those not-for-profits who are super effective. Did you have a particularly uh, bad experience or series of bad experiences that you felt like your particular unique ability wasn't being, uh, you know, acted on by these not-for-profits? No, it's just it's a I've done like you have I've. Yeah. Been president of lots of boards and active in lots of boards, all different subject subject matter, and um, some some were um, semi governmental, some were, some were pure charitable, some were subject matter related, um, history, different types of history, for instance, <laughs> um, and just you know doing performance reviews or budgets or running these organizations has very little to do with the subject matter that attracted you in the first place. And if you're used to running a fast-paced operation, you may find yourself in one of these nonprofits, which is very, which is shaped very differently than that. And they're very, and it's committee work, you know. And, and so I'm not, I'm not critical of it. It just isn't. And I, very, I'm active. I'm on four nonprofit boards right now that are that are not my, that are the kind I'm describing. Yes. Um, and, and do you find yourself like biting your tongue? What, how, how do you survive those? How do you, how do you make a positive contribution? And survive those. Um, I like them. I'm most energized when there's a 
um, when there's a crisis or when there is a an initiative that is um, very very specific. Yeah, uh, I try to be selfish. I've done this long enough, so I I try to avoid the things I don't like doing or I'm not good at. Um, and raising the, money, for instance, has the quarantine um, in the past six months uh, brought up any new challenges for any of those organizations that you're involved with? Good. It, it is yes, yes, and it's it is. Um, it's all bad news for nonprofits. Tell, say more about that. Raising money. I mean, so you, you know what you start. If, let's say you want to be involved in um, historic preservation in a community, yeah. or you have an historical society or something like that. Um, you've get, you end up with a business that needs to be run. You need X dollars to do your to do your historical collection for the community sure but you've got employees and now you have rent and you have insurance and you have all these other things that feel like a business well the money the money shuts off and that is and you it's very hard to feed that organization but why should the money shut off in terms of charitable contributions to an historic organization because of the quarantine um i don't know about you but i'm being asked by every place we give money to to give more now um, because they, because every all these nonprofits are, are struggling. They don't have admissions. Their their grants are not coming more readily. Getting money from from um, donors is more difficult. And so they're asking anyone who can step up to step up double. And you get that request from fifteen directions, and you have to start saying no. Particularly um, if you're uneasy about your own financial future, it's a great deal of uncertainty. I don't feel I don't feel as confident about my financial well-being as I have in the past. And uh, do you think that it's... So let me back up one sentence. Some people would say that the quarantine, in many ways, accelerated some trends that were happening in some domains, in some industries. You know, examples might be, oh, in healthcare, they're taking steps to use more digital platforms. Or in, uh, in higher education, you know, there was a big sort of blundering group of colleges which mm -hmm. are going to get sort of sifted through right. probably. Do you see that also in the not-for-profit sector? Uh, Do you think yes. there's winners and losers? Um, I'll tell you, give you one example sure. um, of, of exactly what you're talking about, a trend that was underway that's been, uh, that has been um, accelerated by this. The uh, American Alliance of Museums uh, has issued a widely quoted uh, prediction that one-third of American museums will not reopen after the pandemic. That's startling. Um, but I think it is maybe indicative of what's going on in other parts of the nonprofit world. But specific to museums, there was an, way before the pandemic, there, there was an awareness of decline in museums. Decline of, um, of admissions? Admissions. Yes. Um, I mean, for instance, like the, the history book that, that you're familiar with that I did, um, I, I researched extensively for that. I didn't travel around to li to libraries and museums to get all the images and all the material that I used in that book. I did it online. Right. Um, and so you just, you, that, that is, uh, the people who have financially supported museums in the past are, are older. Uh, you don't have young people coming in and you don't have to, to contribute or to contribute time or to come in the door. So that, that was underway in the past. And so to your point, the, the pandemic is, is accelerated that. Yeah, that's so interesting because I, I hadn't thought of it actually, Ford, until you said it about this domain. Uh, but um, I had had, I, I love historic associations, 
and I love to visit them, and um, I've been a little busy, and so I haven't visited them as much as I had in the past. And I was thinking of one um, larger historic organization where, like you just said, they sort of had uh, asked Karina and me to increase our generosity to them. And I had to pause because I asked myself, do I think they're going to make it? Meaning, am I just putting good money after bad? Because I just wondered about not only their um, relevance, but their survivability. Mm -hmm. Because if they're counting on people to come in the door and what people are really wanting to do is access that information online, I I just wonder where that ends up. Intellectually, it'll be... Five years from now or some period of time when when, um, the conventional wisdom emerges on what should have been done in the pandemic, it will be very interesting to read. You know, this is so fast and so unknown right now. No idea what the next step should be in so many fronts. But one thing that will – I'd look interested to see what the future uh, says we should be doing is on these nonprofits that are keeping on staff. There's a real commitment to supporting staff. I think more so than in a business setting where you'd say, oh, money stopped coming in, we have to furlough people. There's a real resistance to that in the nonprofit world. And so they are, they are struggling between furloughing people, which is, un, which is not attractive, or digging into the endowment and you'll then raises the question, what's an endowment for? So some nonprofits have shut down. Mystic Seaport, the biggest maritime museum in, in the country, shut down. What do you mean shut down? Laid up, closed, mothballed. Oh, mothballed. Yeah, let everyone go. Yeah. Um, with a hope of reopening, and they are such a large institution, I, I, I'm sure they expect to do that. But um, uh, and, and there was a big article in the Boston Globe recently about this. Um, some, of the, some of the large museums have done that. Others have said, no, this is what our endowment is for, and if we've got to you know, dig dangerously into our endowment, we're going to stay open. We're not going to let staff go because staff is so essential. That's very interesting. I'm guessing uh, the nuance for me there is that uh, I don't know anything about Mystic Seaport's decision, but you could imagine a governing board at Mystic Seaport saying, we have to shut down during this time of uncertainty and low admissions to conserve our capital and, frankly, our positive energy so that we can reopen when and if it becomes appropriate to do that. And I can also imagine that some other groups who are dipping into their endowment not to lay off people could inadvertently be actually just continuing to fund the old-fashioned way of doing things and maybe you know spending the endowment inappropriately because they are not willing to make those changes. And they're going to find out after the fact what they should have been doing. It's a shame, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I worry about it. And I, I do, do, too. I, I'm inclined to go to, to tip the way you just described, but I have to confess I have no idea what to do. Yeah. But I also think these times bring are, are more, are more, bring about a more compelling reason to do a, a foundation. For someone who, in, in my setting, uh, or I think lots of the people you deal with who come out of the come out of a fast paced world, all of a sudden they're not in it anymore, but they're highly highly energized and capable uh, to set up their own foundation. I think is a way to to get to get the job done uh, and to avoid uh, all this extraneous business that you get in an organization. So listeners um, know may not know, but um, Ford has been. Uh, needling me for years that um, 
why don't more of our friends and clients at Bigelow who have a large capital gain transaction do a private operating foundation, which is what he's describing was a solution for, for him. And so, Ford, I think this is really timely and really great to think about because there has been this concern about by entrepreneurs about wanting to do things in a way that helps their communities and helps other people, but this discomfort with the traditional organization structure of many of those not-for-profits. So describe your foundation, if you could, and just help us understand a little bit about like, what it does and what uh, it requires from you. Um, I will. Um, at some point, will you describe how typical this is about among the people who, who who sell their companies? Is it common for you to see people want to get into some sort of philanthropy, commit their time and their money to it? I think it's very common. So right? it's, it's completely usual. So, like, it would be that um, the vast, vast majority of our friends and clients did not start their business in order to have a capital gain, but rather they created something with their teams, their employees, and their groups that, for the ones that we deal with, turn out to have uh, enterprise value, usually far in excess of what they ever thought when they started. So uh, they are um, wanting to move the organization on to the next majority owner for many of the same reasons that you described in your situation. And oh, by the way, uh, if they really have created that enterprise value, they would like to take some chips off the table for, to assure the financial security of their family. But usually the enterprise value actually is far in excess of what's needed to do that, if you just sort of like do the arithmetic. And they usually are people who have uh, great ties to their communities. And so, yeah, they want to do things that are um, meaningful to specific domains that they have. But because they don't have... The formulation of maybe what you and I are about to talk about, I get worried for them that in some ways they become targets of people with really good intentions, really good, as I said, very good causes, but they become targets to become merely funders of somebody else's dream or somebody else's mission. So the thought that they could emerge from their capital gain transaction and go from where they were calling the shots, maybe with their family for it, maybe it's a governing of their family, and if they were going to leave that behind in the last chapter, I think it would be potentially be very energizing for them to know, actually, our family could govern this operating foundation, and so it would be a way to keep us pulled together in this new way. Does that help? Yep. I, 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 it's helpful to me, and it, it is consistent with my observation for the, of the many people you've sold companies for and I think oftentimes these are people who want to do more than just write a check yes they are um, and when someone sells you you touched on this but when someone sells a company if if um, they have free time and they have free money and they're going to be if they already aren't on a bunch of boards and they probably are they're going to be asked asked and you get in there and all, you're on a new board and all of a sudden you realize sometimes you realize I'm on this board because they think I can write a big check, and then that's wasted time. Um, if that if that's your only conclusion, if it's a, if it's a disappointment, uh, so I'll tell you a little bit about the three types of foundations. Yeah, please do. Okay, first I have to say I'm I'm not an expert at this, but I think that one reason that I've I've asked Bigelow whether 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 they would want to help people more is this is difficult. 
and the information I'm going to give you is probably uh, not 100% accurate. It's my understanding. I've done none of the professional work on this. But I did figure out how to do a private operating foundation, uh, which many people have done, but it was not laid out for me. And if you go on the Internet, there's not a real clear roadmap for this. But I, I would say that for 501c3s, which are tax-exempt uh, organizations under the, uh, under the Internal Revenue Service Code, uh, there are private charities which take money from people and they run a food pantry or what have you. But a private charity collects donations and then conducts its activity of social benefit. That's a private charity. Then there are private foundations, and they are the ones writing the checks. So a private foundation um, may get approved by, by the IRS to, uh, to disperse money. You have to spend at least 5% of your, uh, of your uh, body, of, of your, your foundation body, uh, annually, there aren't lots of rules. Uh, you write checks, and you have to write checks to other nonprofits. And that's, that's write a check to the symphony, write a check to the Nature Conservancy, write a check for scholarships. The fourth one is a hybrid of both. You, you, this is the private operating foundation. You need special approval from the IRS to do it, but is you are the food pantry, and you are the funder. Both, uh, and it's it, if you can get the approval, it has a fair amount of flexibility. Uh, you can run a business to earn money within the charity, within the, the private operating foundation. Uh, but uh, examples of a private operating foundation would be a research research institute, a museum, a library that you're funding yourself, and you can take. I, I, as I said, I could I could take money from another from another um, nonprofit, but. Being a private operating foundation, basically, if if the foundation, I'll say I, because but the foundation, if I say something's going to be tax deductible, if if within our very narrow charter, which in, in my case is uh, historic preservation in Maine and environmental conservation in Maine, if I adopt a project as the as the leader of the foundation, it becomes tax deductible. Uh, so you take you need confidence. The IRS has to have a little bit of confidence that you're not going to abuse it, and they will they will pull the plug on on these operations very quickly. So so let me just summarize what I think I heard you say, which is uh, under the code, the IRS code, the uh, not for profits are allowed tax exempt status, and donors are allowed to deduct their gifts to these organizations, which fall under 501c3. Under 501c3, you're saying there are private charities, there are private foundations, and then there are private operating foundations. And so your foundation, what is its name? The Presumpscot Foundation. The Presumpscot Foundation is a private operating foundation. That's right. And uh, so if I understand, if I can encapsulate in a sentence, the reason to do a private operating foundation would be that you can not only be the funder, but you can actually cause the execution of the good works that you're trying to cause through the foundation. Correct. In your case, that's historic preservation in Maine and environmental conservation in Maine. Correct. Does one have to set forth a charter like that in order to qualify? Right. Uh, and uh, there, not every not every accountant and not every attorney knows how to do this. So obviously there are specialists. And that's why I, between 
I, I think if Bigelow had a professional team that said that has been there, done that uh, for your this type of uh, client that you deal with, it would be it would make it so efficient, and uh, people would be able to avoid all that I had to do to go through this. Um, but you the you the IRS. There are extra steps to get this done. The IRS has to declare that you are a private op- private operating foundation for you to have the type of authority I'm talking about. And it's not that rare, um, but um, but it's not well known either. The um, and how how long did it take you to go through? Not to do the research because you admit that you didn't know where to start, and right. once you had to find the people. But once you found the people, was it an exhaustive process? No, it, it was probably three months. Uh, I had an attorney who does trusts in the states work, who was very good, who had who had done this for some large private oper- operating foundations. Right. In and, Maine. And so, in your case, you're a Maine resident. So, is it important to have an attorney in the state that you're a resident? Not of? at all. Okay. No. no. Okay. Um, and um, normally, the IRS makes you wait four years. Uh, and they'll look at you at the in, first. You would be approved, and this is not the way I did it. This is not the way I recommend doing it. But the the conventional way of getting approved as a private operating foundation is they would approve you first as a foundation, and that's the one where you just write checks. And then they, at four years into it, they would review uh, your a number of tests to see if you if you qualify to become a private operating foundation. You can get an advanced ruling, which is what I insisted on with my attorney. Um, and so we had to answer a bunch of questions to the IRS. They came back and they said, you know, what about this? What about that? And I think they have to make sure that you've got some in, in your declared area of interest that's narrow enough to minimize abuse. Um, and that you have got some expertise or that you're willing to bring in some expertise to be effective at it. And so do you fo- file a Form 990? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So so part of the Private Operating Foundation rules and regulations would be you, you give public disclosure of your income statement. Yeah. It's all – you have to play by the rules, and you play the rules in, in the wide o- – play by the rules in the wide open. You have to be completely transparent. Completely. It's and all on the Internet. So in your case, does the Presumpta Foundation have employees? No. Okay. And what are some projects that you have worked on through the Presumpta Foundation since um, 10 years ago when you divested Safe Handling? Um, I'll give you some examples of that in, in to answer your question, but I also want to highlight that the the – tax benefits of being a private operating foundation versus a foundation are more attractive for a private operating foundation. Say more. Um, there's in a regular foundation there is a limit to how much of your how much of your donations are tax deductible. I think it's limited to if you if you're writing checks to the symphony and the nature conservancy and distributing money that way, I think you can only take deductions up to 30% of your income for the year. In a private operating foundation, it's up to 50%. Okay. Um, Donations that have appreciated in value Mm -hmm. go in not at your cost, but at fair market value. And again, I'm not an attorney. I'm not a practicing attorney. I'm certainly not a specialist at this. I'm not a tax expert by a mile. Um, but I know that's significant. I donated a piece of land uh, that went into the foundation. I, I had to turn it over to public use. Uh, but it went, went into the foundation at fair market value, and that was more than I paid for. Right, right. 
So, so if you if you are an entrepreneur who has a capital gain, and you are looking for a way to participate in the social not for profit sector, uh, and if you are able to articulate this mission or this this focus. Um, then you could go to the IRS. In your case, you ask for a letter ruling in advance, right, mm-hmm. to say that, yes, if you do these things, yeah. you will do that. Yeah. Did you also have to fund the startup with a, like, with a certain amount of endowment or anything like that? No. Okay. No. I, I, I fund for, um, for projects. Yes. And do you do outside fundraising when you do that project? No, I could. And, but, so what do you mean you could? You, you choose not to? Uh, technically... I mean, I, I would not. I would not compromise my status as a private operating foundation if I came to you and said, "This this schoolhouse yeah. in New Hampshire, let's yeah. restore this and give it to the town." Right. Uh, if I, if you were uh, another five hundred one c three, or if you wrote a check to me personally, I could do that. I just have chosen not to yet. Uh, on the, I've been able to manage the projects I did myself. Okay. So so for the Presumpscot Foundation, you've been the principal funder. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, but if I wrote a check to the Presumpscot Foundation for the purpose of funding one of those projects, the check would be uh, tax deductible by me, Correct. and it's not taxable by the foundation. Correct. Right. And so I would think you would want to go raise capital from some other people along the way. I have had a f- I've, I've looked at a couple of projects uh, where I was going to do that. Uh, where they were larger, I've done enough with with historic preservation now, so I think I have got um, enough of a resume. So if I came to you and said, "Let's do this," uh, I could, I, I might have a chance of convincing you to believe in me to raise the money, and it would allow me to do a project that was that was faster and larger than I could do if I tackled it myself. I just haven't had something that large yet. So to take a silly example, is the Gates Foundation a private operating foundation? I believe it is. Right. So, in the case of the Presumpticate Foundation, what happens if, God forbid, Ford slips on a banana peel? Well, there is a board. So, it, this, you know, we, um, my attorney is a board member. Yeah. Probably doesn't need to be. There's no interaction there at all. Yeah. Uh, I just haven't made a change there. And um, I have two family members who are, yeah. uh, if we, but it's basically been me. But would you, is it your intention that this foundation carries on beyond you? Right, I'd like to do that. Yeah, uh, I, I don't I don't feel strongly about it uh, right now. It just it is a very effective way for me to uh, um, carry out projects that I think are interesting to me and for the public good. Let, let's just talk about one of those most perhaps most notable ones, which is your acquisition of and restoration of the Halfway Rock Lighthouse in Casco Bay. Do you mind saying so? Was that a big project? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you had to somehow uh, acquire the Halfway Rock Lighthouse from the federal government, right? So that was three hundred thousand there, and then the restoration cost a lot more than that. And that was all through the Presumpscot Foundation. It was. And is the is the Presumpscot Foundation the 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 owner? Of Halfway Rock Lighthouse, it the foundation owns it, yeah. And so does does is there a diff, a separate entity that's the Halfway Rock entity? No, no. It's just Halfway Rock is one of the assets of the of the foundation. And so, God forbid, what happens if something happens to the foundation? How does Halfway Rock continue to get operated or maintained or restored? 
it, it like if a museum goes out of business, you know, you find you, you hope you find an, another responsible owner. Right. Right. And so um, is that a situation where it would make sense either to uh, this sounds kind of crazy, but either charge admission or get other people to make annual donations for the upkeep of Halfway Rock? Well, you try you you anything you whether it's for your own exclusive ownership or something you're doing through a foundation, you try to do things responsibly. Uh, and I've tried to restore that in a way that is not going to need uh, frequent maintenance. So you know, if every 20 years you got to spend some money, it's not going to be uh, overwhelming. And if someone, it's now it's in great shape. If some, I, I think I could. Originally, uh, there were six nonprofits that looked at taking ownership, of it, and they could have they could have taken it, gotten it for free from the government because they were nonprofits. Um, no one would take it. Now I would have no problem finding uh, a nonprofit to uh, become the custodian of it. And just so listeners can um, can sample this on their own, Ford, remind me of the Halfway Rock uh, website. Uh, halfwayrock.com and it is simply a, it's a modest website that has some of the history um, uh, of the lighthouse on there some photos uh, access to the live webcam and access to the book that I sold that I wrote you um, how, how would people um, if they wanted to how would they get a copy of that book they can go to the website they go to the it's website on Amazon also and they can purchase it off, yeah. off the website or off of Amazon yeah. and um, if people wanted to uh, make a donation to support the maintenance of Halfway Rock. Is that possible? No. It's, it, right. it, 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 thank you for offering that. Uh, I, it just, it's not something that I need at this point. Uh, and, right. Uh, so, so, I get in that business. so I think this is really an important thing for, for entrepreneur owner managers who are thinking about this to hear. So I guess you could have made this more complex and you would have probably needed a staff or some staff and some systems which would accept donations from others to do that. And in your case, you've chosen, if I'm reading you right, in the name of simplicity, that, no, I'll forego those other people's donations, but that way I don't have to, like, have the systems and the record-keeping and the whatever, whatever. Do I have that right? Yeah, and I don't have to answer to you or whoever donates the money. It's not that I have money to burn. It's just I, it is not – I'm not um, not interested in going there. As you, as you Who do you have to answer to? Uh, my – well, the Internal Revenue Service right. uh, and my conscience, I would never do a project uh, that I didn't think was of significant public benefit. The, the, the fact that the IRS gives, and I'm not in love with the internal re- paying taxes, believe me, but um, the fact that the, that the American tax system gives a deduction for doing projects of public benefit is unique. I don't think other countries, I know most other countries don't do that. So... This is all being subsidized by the government, so I would never want to uh, do a project or spend money on a project that uh, um, I didn't feel good about. Right, right. I get that. But so, so in a way, uh, in addition to your conscience, you do have the IRS who has the ability to, if they want to, look over your shoulder at the projects just to check the box that, yeah, they are of public benefit, right? Mm-hmm. Do they do that? They they. They've got strong tools. I don't think they have strong enforcement. When you look at some of the abuses like the Clinton Foundation or other foundations where people really use it for their own benefit or have family members on the payroll and so forth, uh, 
and those plugs don't get pulled by the IRS, I wonder who's watching this. But because the IRS has got such, they can't. They can just shut you down. And, and they can turn those abuses retroactively into taxable income. Right. Uh, and I just, it's, it's because I don't understand clearly where the limits are, I am studious about staying near the edges, away from the edges. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm with you. That's who needs that level of stress. Yeah. yeah. So um, I will say also, Pete, one thing. You asked if I had employees. Yes. Um, I could imagine getting to the point where I ha- I'd like to have enough projects underway so that I needed employees. It's nothing I've avoided specifically, and I've had lots of part-time employees. So when the book wasn't just the lighthouse that went through the foundation. The book went through the through the foundation. Um, and all the revenue that comes in from the book, of course, ha- can't be going in my pocket. That stays in the checkbook for the foundation. But uh, I, you know, when I hired research assistants and so forth, that was tax deductible. So. Uh, I th- I'm imagining that a lot of people listening to this think to themselves, well, that sounds pretty cool to be able to do that. Um, so before they get to a foundation, many of them will, are going to want to be an entrepreneur like you. What advice would you give to, I don't know, let's make it up, some smart, savvy, driven college student who wants to be an entrepreneur? What advice would you give them? Uh I learned a great deal by being scared and being way out on limbs. It makes you self-sufficient and confident, and I would say to don't be afraid of being there. So I'm going to interpret by being scared and being out on limbs, your principle, you have risk of loss, you have skin in the game. In your case, what what was your skin in the game? Was it your your checkbook, your reputation? Uh, The financial motivator, when you don't have a lot, is is a significant one. I think behind it all, risk, is, risk of loss. Yeah, I've mortgaged my house for for projects plenty yep. of times. Uh, the financial loss is the is the has the most immediacy. It, it, you know, when I was working at one o'clock in the morning or four o'clock in the morning, it was it was usually because I was running scared to make sure we didn't run out of money. But you might be working at four o'clock in the morning now. Do you have risk of loss now? No, Do you feel I like that? To, I like to work as well. <laughs> so um, let's pretend we go to sleep tonight and magically tomorrow we wake up and it's September 24th, 2030, 10 years from now. And you say, and we have a coffee and you say, Pete, remember that day 10 years ago we had that interview and podcast interview? I say, yeah. And you say, everything's been going so great ever since then, personally and professionally. And I say, really? What happened? Yeah, I think we will have that discussion. I'm conf- very confident in the future. Uh, what happened? If, if um, Certainly it would be a continuation of the same. I bet I would be less involved in other nonprofits and more involved in my own. It works out so well. I just haven't, you know, that this, this is... Uh, it's it's a perfect platform for for the way I like to operate. In this group of listeners, you know, you have entrepreneurs who are both for profit and not for profit entrepreneurs, and um, some some entrepreneurs like you or me actually fulfill their desire by forming a not for profit and doing things that way. Um, in all of them, I would say superior achievement is very common among these listeners. 
What's maybe not as common is not all of them would describe themselves as fulfilled or content. Would you describe yourself as content? Yes. Was that the answer you were expecting? I, I, I'm I, restless, but I'm completely content. I mean, I'm restless in that I, I uh, am always trying to do more, and perhaps to a fault, but I'm definitely content with today, yesterday, and what tomorrow's likely to be. Awesome. Are you called to the future or driven by the past? Called to the future. Does that surprise you? No. no I wouldn't think so. No. Ford, I want to thank you for being a guest on Positive Enterprise Value. I want to thank you for your work with the Presumpscott Foundation. Uh, but most of all, I want to thank you for your friendship. Yep. Thank you. I feel the same way. And thank you for giving me the chance to talk about this. I hope it's helpful to somebody. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. We believe that entrepreneur owner managers are the most powerful pro-social and pro-economic force on the planet. And it's for that reason that we dedicate our firm Bigelow to working exclusively with them. At Positive Enterprise Value, we freely share our learning so that you can absorb from the experiences of other private business owners with skin in the game, just like you. Bigelow is widely regarded as the M&A advisor that deals exclusively with high-performing entrepreneur owner managers. Our scrappy independent boutique firm only offers one service, that is to help build and someday capture enterprise value. You can find all of the episodes on this podcast on Bigelow's website, which is BigelowLLC.com.